Hello and welcome to Life in Words. I'm Nate. I'm Tom. And we're here to discuss the books and authors that have meant things to us at different points in our lives. Significant works, significant works to us at the time, maybe significant works to the culture or to the literary world at large. We are doing this on Zoom as our first uh, of the series done under quarantine. And we are doing the beat writers, specifically the beat writers from the 50s, the 50s era of beat writers, Kerouac and Ginsburg. Uh, we're including Amiri Bakara as well, even though he was Leroy Jones at that time and went on to do other things. We're going to touch a little bit on William Burroughs. It is somewhat ironic that one of the principal texts of the of the beats from the 50s is on the road a novel that is not about social distancing uh not really and uh, is something we can't do today so it's an interesting experience to read that under quarantine so tom how are you doing i'm doing all right good, good. and you I am hanging in there. I am still working. I am dil diligently going to work. I work in healthcare, so there's no, the good part is there's no uh, layoffs or anything for me, which I hopefully will uh, continue. And Tom, you are teaching via the web now, is that right? I'm doing my best. <laughs> Excellent. So let's dive right in. Tom, you want to start? I'd love to. I want to start with two two lines of a poem by Amiri Baraka called In Memory of Radio. And he starts off, Who has ever stopped to think of the divinity of Lamont Cranston? Only Jack Kerouac that I know of in me. I think that's a, a kind of perfect introduction mm. uh, to the beats. Because we get this, this world where you have divinity and this kind of divine holiness of of the world in Lamont Cranston, which I think hardly anyone remembers is the alter ego of the shadow, the Orson Welles radio show of the 1930s. Right. Um, you know, Ginsburg is going to say, you know, the bomb is holy as the seraphim. Yes. And there's this complete idea that everything is important. Everything matters. You know, the place that you should care about is the place where you are. And going back to this idea of talking to strangers and being with strangers, uh, there's this pervasive idea that the important people are the people that you're encountering. Right. That there's a sort of wisdom and, and holiness in the everyday, coupled with the idea that you're also looking for this sort of a static connection to uh, some sort of higher power. Uh, God or or enlightenment uh, that Kerouac clearly pursues and on the road Ginsburg is very interested in, in his poetry um, you know probably the one big exception in the beat world is maybe Burroughs who doesn't seem like he is necessarily looking for the, that same kind of connection but um, as I say we're not going to do a lot with Burroughs in this particular show just because his writing is very very different than the others in certain fundamental right. ways. And all of his significant works really start with um, Naked Lunch, which is published, I believe, in 1960. So it's a little outside of the chronology that we're looking at. But I think how you read On the Road is tied up in 
how much you can get behind what he's doing in that book, the traveling and everything that goes along with that as a spiritual experience, as a spiritual quest. I think the people who love On the Road love it because it's not just this story of a sort of picaresque journey across the country and back and back and back and forth, but a kind of spiritual journey. And how much you buy that is how much you enjoy the novel to, to some degree. I think you're absolutely right. Especially with Burroughs, you know, he meets strangers in his books and he's just trying to score drugs. Or he's trying to sell them. Right, right. Burroughs is a very complicated figure and um, his books are very complicated. I mean, I think, you know, Junkie, which was published in the 50s, as, which he wrote for, to try to make some money, which was just basically, you know, people would publish these, these accounts of, you know, sex-crazed college girls or street drug addicts and give them really, you know, racy uh, covers and trying to make a few bucks. Uh, and that's what he did with Junkie. That's how he published it. He published it under a pseudonym. But it wasn't really, a, it was not intended to be a work of art in that same vein. And it was a, it's, you know, it's a mildly interesting book about somebody who was a street-level drug addict. addict. Um, he also wrote this book, Queer, which was not published in the 50s, but wrote at the same time about somebody who was gay and living in the 50s openly, kind of, again, in a sort of degraded way that would be very uh, hyped at the time. He was, I think he was unable, they were unable to publish that. That was a little too far. It was published in the 80s. Um, but in any case, um, yeah, those are just very, very different different works and and clearly not seemingly of a person on a spiritual quest of any kind. Well, his spiritual quest was, you know, he, he believed in magic and he was trying to put execrations and hexes and curses upon his enemies. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's not quite in the spirit of the age. It's very, it's much darker in its way. But, um, you know, it's interesting that later in the 60s, when the whole counterculture movement is unfolding, uh, Burroughs is writing, you know, their garden of earthly delights is an open sewer, kind of saying like all of this drug stuff that's now becoming so popular is really just a, a, a way into a, a pretty ugly place uh, and that they're kind of being duped into this. But um, that's getting a little far afield from where we're, we're focusing on. But it is interesting. Burroughs is much, much different uh, than than. Ginsburg or Kerouac or any of the others in terms of uh, his, his focus and what he's interested in and how he goes about things. So I think a good place to start is with Ginsburg. Um, and if you don't mind, Tom, I was going to launch a little bit into America because I think this is one of the interesting things about the Beats in the 50s is that they are engaging in this idea of America. You brought up The Shadow, the radio series from a previous era. And I think that the thing that I like about the beats, and I'd say Ginsburg in particular, because Ginsburg is the one beat writer that really continues. Well, I mean, others as well. Corso continues after the 50s. But Kerouac, I think, very... And he's still going. 100 something years old. Right. <laughs> right. That's right. Fairland Getty is still with us. I actually visited City Lights Bookstore last year when I was in San Francisco. It's, and it's still going strong. It still has a good vibe. It's a very good bookstore. I recommend it. 
uh, for anybody who's out in San Francisco. I guess I'm sure it's closed right now, so but eventually it will open again. But I'm going to read a little bit of America just because I think it's worth hearing the way in which Ginsburg identifies with America and also criticizes America and is suspect of America based on his own experiences as a person and based on what American politics were in 1957. Just as a warning, this does he does use the word nigger in this poem, but he uses it in a satirical way that I think is pretty clearly satirizing the attitudes of the time. It is not a representative of certainly how Ginsburg feels about African-Americans. Uh, America. America, I've given you all and now I'm nothing. America, $2.27, January 17th, 1956. I can't stand my own mind. America, when will we end the human war? Go fuck yourself with your atom bomb. I don't feel good, don't bother me. I won't write my poem until I'm in my right mind. America, when will you be angelic? When will you take off your clothes? When will you see your, when you will look at yourself through the grave? When will you be worthy of your million Trotskyites? America, why are your libraries full of tears? America, will you send your eggs to India? I'm sick of your insane demands. When can I go to the supermarket and buy what I need with my good looks? America, after all, it is you and I who are perfect, not the next world. Your machinery is too much for me. You made me want to be a saint. There must be some other way to settle this argument. Burroughs is in Tangiers. I don't think he'll come back. It's sinister. Are you trying to be sinister? Or is it some form of practical joke? I'm trying to come to the point. I refuse to give up my obsession. America, stop pushing. I know what I'm doing. America, the plum blossoms are falling. I haven't read the newspapers for months. Every day somebody goes on trial for murder. America, I feel sentimental about the wobblies. America, I used to be a communist when I was a kid. I'm not sorry. I smoke marijuana every chance I get. I sit in my house for days on end and stare at the roses in the closet. When I go to Chinatown, I get drunk and never get laid. My mind is made up. There's going to be trouble. You should have seen me reading Marx. My psychoanalyst thinks I'm perfectly right. I won't say the Lord's Prayer. I have mystical visions and cosmic vibrations. America, I still haven't told you what you did to Uncle Max after he came over from Russia. I'm addressing you. Are you going to let your emotional life be run by Time Magazine? I'm obsessed by Time Magazine. I read it every week. Its cover stares at me every time I slink past the corner candy store. I read it, I read it in the basement of the Berkeley Public Library. It's always telling me about responsibility. Businessmen are serious. Movie producers are serious. Everybody's serious but me. It occurs to me that I am America. I am talking to myself again. All right, I'm going to leave it there just because it, the poem does go on for a little bit. And I think you get the sense of it if you haven't read it yet. Uh, certainly you can widely available on the internet. Please do. Uh, but I think you get pretty clearly that he is someone who feels like he is and is not a part of America. Yeah, I am America, you know, is what he says. But he also is, you know, he was raised in a family that embraced communism. His mother was a communist uh, in the 1920s uh, and 30s, particularly in the 30s. 
uh, as a lot of people were during the Great Depression. And he was taken to, as he alludes to in the poem at this point, alludes to again later, taking to communist rallies. Um, and this is during the Red Scare, you know, in the 50s. You know, is it okay for somebody to have gone to a uh, communist rally in 1935 now that it's 1955 or 56? Later in the poem, he says, at, just at the end, and I didn't get to the point where he used the N-word, but it's in there. Uh, again, I don't think he's meaning it in the way that might be the worst. The last line of the poem is, America, I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel. And that's very interesting to me because he's putting his shoulder to the wheel. So if you picture a wheel, obviously putting your shoulder to the wheel is trying to roll it, trying to move it. And putting, but putting your shoulder to the wheel could also be trying to stop it. So it's this ambivalence between trying to move the country and move with the country and say, yes, I'm an American, but no, I'm not American. I'm doing all these things that are considered un-American. So he's caught in this ambivalence. Right. Putting your shoulder to the wheel usually means getting to work. Right, right. Doing the thing. Right. But I do think there's this undercomment of, of, of maybe stopping or slowing down or having a bit of ambivalence about what am I working for? He's not turning uh, laths in precision parts factories, as he says. And I think that's the ambivalence. I mean, I think there's a lot of great art that comes out of ambivalence. If you know exactly what you feel about something and exactly what you have to say about it, it's easier to write a polemic, you know, than you write a, 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 a treatise, a, a manifesto. Uh, but those things usually aren't art. They're usually fairly hard to read, in fact. William Butler Yeats said, our quarrels with others, we turn to rhetoric. Our quarrels with ourselves, we turn into poetry. That's it. That's it. This is a quarrel he's having with himself. As he says, he's talking, I'm talking to myself again. You know, this is him trying to locate himself, I think, within what is assumed to be America or American at that point in time. When you be worthy of your million Trotskyites. <laughs> right. Uh, he is always talking about an America that is, that does exist, that is real, that's as real as every other America, but does not end up in Time Magazine. Time Magazine's a single version of America. That's, that's accurate. That's true. But there's also this, this other America that is not on the glossy stands. Right. It might be on the wire rack with Kerouac and his trash novels. <laughs> right. Arrows. But it's not, it's not in time. You won't see it on the 11 o'clock news unless it's sensational. Right. Yeah, and I think the 50s were also a time when America was trying to come to terms with that, with that, where there was a, a sort of uniformity. I mean, I think that the beats in this moment are kind of, I think part of what happens in terms of narrative, of cultural narrative, is the 60s, things start to fray and fall apart. And now we just have, we have cultures, we have communities, we have different people who are accepted at different levels, uh, by different parts of society, but we don't have this coherent narrative. And the 50s was sort of the last time when I think we as a culture tried to come down and say, 
this is our narrative of who we are as a people. This is America. We just had this, well, two traumatic experiences of the Great Depression and World War II, and this has kind of made this culture of, you know, this is who we are, and it sort of embraces everyone in a way because so many people served in the war. Everybody went through common experiences to some degree in the Great Depression, but um, at the same time, it's a coming of commercial culture, of mass culture of TV uh, and media, where there was a sense of, I think, um, who really gets to be an American. And that's obviously the civil rights movement comes out of that to a degree as well. The beats are dealing with that same thing. And this is sort of, these are the last, culturally the last moments before we start breaking apart entirely to a greater or lesser degree where now half of us are, well, not half of us, most of us are probably social distancing and some of us are choosing to buy semi-automatic machine guns and go out with flags and rally around the Capitol in hopes of intimidating their way into doing, into being able to, you know, kind of kill yourself in public with the virus. Uh, it's a different world. Anyway, massive digression. Apologies. <laughs> it's okay. And I think all of that is already there in the beats. You see the world already fraying. Right. Where America, if it defines itself too narrowly, will not allow everyone in. There's and here we have Ginsburg and Kerouac trying to bring everyone in. There's not a whole lot of rejection in these books. Right. That's also what makes the, the 50s really interesting with the Beats is that they're not into what comes later, which is you're cool enough to be in the club or you're not. Don't trust anyone over 30. Right. That's, that's a tough slogan when you're 50. Let me just say. Um, but yeah, Ginsburg, there's a wonderful footnote to Howell. Mm. a separate little poem where he, he mentions this and he, he talks about the squares. You know, everyone is here with us. Yeah. Whether they, they know it or not, whether they want to be or not. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is holy. Everything is included. That's not the spirit of the sixties. That's not the spirit of today. No, it is certainly not. And it's one of the things that makes it hardest because there are so many people who say, well, the other side is just, they're just a bunch of terrible people that I, you know, that are to be disregarded. But I think that's also part of the spiritual vision of the beats is that this is a spirit that's big enough. I don't want to call it, I don't even know what the spirituality is, frankly. I've heard people talk at length about Kerouac's interest in and devotion to Buddhism at different points, especially in the 50s. Uh, although he was raised a Catholic and does still retain a lot of Catholicism. But I don't know that it's ever, it doesn't feel to me when I reread uh, On the Road that that was, that, that a Buddhist subtext was so clearly woven into the, into the book that that was an undeniable part of the spirituality of it or, or whatever. But I think part of the spiritual quest is that it is something big enough to encompass all of these, these folks and, and, and all of these people in the United States and whatever, whatever it is that this country is about, it's big enough and positive enough to embrace it all and to turn it into a positive thing, a positive direction. 
Well, being a beat is about exploration, but it's not so much about settling. Hmm. Later on, the beats would all settle into some very strange things. Right. I don't want to talk about any of them. Right, right. Certainly, Ginsburg ends up in a strange place. Well, you know, but he was... does. Yeah, yeah. And you already mentioned Kerouac. Right, right. Uh, Well, I think, you know, Ginsburg was always the promoter of the beat generation. I mean, that's one thing if you read about the biographical part of of what goes on in the 50s, Ginsburg was the one who was would knock on publishers' doors sort of over and over and over again, pitching his own work, but also pitching Kerouac's work and Corso's work and even Burroughs uh, to the extent that he had publishable work or manuscripts at that time. Um, Ginsburg was the one who was, was kind of pounding the pavement on the Beat Generation's behalf and kind of made the generation what it, what it was. I mean, that was his to some degree, I think his doing in terms of having a, a quote unquote movement or a generation or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's part of what he remains. I mean, they open a college in, in Denver in the 1970s, the uh, Naropa Institute of Disembodied Poetics, which I believe still exists. You can go there and get a degree and they do a lot of, uh, uh, they have very interesting kind of bizarre ish classes. I mean, if it's something you're interested in, uh, it does still exist. So there's all that stuff. But uh, Kerouac does become a tragic figure because his alcoholism just consumes him for whatever reasons. Um, But let's not leave Ginsburg quite yet. Did you did you have other poems you wanted to discuss, Tom? Uh, Yes, I do. I definitely want to, well, we can't leave Ginsburg without talking about Howell, but before we get there, yes, uh, I did want to talk about a supermarket in California. Yes. Um, now, we were just talking about uh, where they end up, and Ginsburg, I think, inevitably kind of ends up a self-parody, and he writes a letter to the um, National Endowment for the Arts, at one point says, you have to give me money. I'm a national treasure. <laughs> I'm going to try that approach as well. Um, I will too. We'll, we'll try it for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but there's a, there's a wonderful aspect of a supermarket, supermarket in California. Uh, the beats are always portrayed in 1950s pop culture as being uh, you know, these kind of useless beatniks who say daddy-o and won't go to work and don't know anything. Right. What I love about this is that it begins with this line, what thoughts I have of you tonight, Walt Whitman, for I walk down the side streets under the trees with a headache, self-conscious looking at the full moon. And one thing that you get in Ginsburg over and over again is an awareness of where he stands with greater literary figures from the past, where he stands in the culture. He really doesn't see himself as someone who's burning everything down. He doesn't see himself as being a giant of literature. He's seeing himself in context of these greater figures. 
Right. Particularly Whitman, who is probably the, the poet, you know, that he is most like generally is Whitman in terms of his prose and, and in terms of his vision, at least in the 50s, this envision, uh, this vision that, that takes into account all of America and Americans and what does that mean? Obviously, that comes right out of Whitman. That's right out of Leaves of Grass. It's a hundred oh, years later. Ferry. It's right there. Yeah, yep, yep. Where right. you stand on the Brooklyn Ferry and you see all of America. Yep. And that is a sentiment that I think uh, that's the seed from which Ginsburg grows. Now, Howell is, of course, the, the great poem here. I think it's the great work of the Beat Generation. Okay. I don't know. You might want to say it's on the road, but I. Oh God, no, no. I mean, I think on the road has a lot of cultural significance, but we'll we'll get to talking about it. I don't know that I could make a great case for on the road being a great piece of literature, but I think it has a great cultural significance. But anyway, um, let's go to Howell. It was. Um, you want to tell the story here? I'm not totally up on the story. Well, I. I know that Howell was uh, kind of a landmark when it was first read at this very famous reading in San Francisco in 1955, I believe, or 56, uh, and um, that has been described in, from, from many different points of view. You know, all of the big beats were there, and, and Ginsburg was, you know, again, kind of a cheerleader, uh, he hadn't published a ton. Um, you know, interestingly, he's not really in On the Road very much as his character, Carlo Marx. You know, he's kind of a, I wouldn't say that he's a peripheral figure, but he's not that well known. And within the beats, he's, you know, he's, he's one of probably a handful of openly gay people in America in 1955. So he's a little bit marginalized. And he gets up and he reads Howl, and it becomes an absolute... Uh, you know, people are stunned. People are by the language, the yes, obscenity, but also the flow of it, the rhythms, the 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 breadth of its vision, uh, and well, you know, all of this stuff. They get into trouble trying to publish, and I don't know the history of all of that too too well, except that there are court cases involved, certainly with Naked Lunch, and I think with Howell as well. There were some court cases where. Um, that's where we get the sort of band in Boston uh, phenomenon. Um, but anyway. Uh, San Francisco, of course. Right, right. In 6,000 miles away in England. Yeah. And then it was, it was uh, confiscated by customs. Oh. City lights. And poor Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who. Right. Uh, he must have been a kid at the time had to go before a federal judge and say that this is not this is not pornography, this is not trash, this is literature. And the judge stopped the trial. He could read Ulysses. Right. <laughs> and he came back, all right, this is literature. This is some young man is saying something. So yeah, I th I like that I I'd forgotten that story. I like the fact that, you know, they just as long as they could find that there, somebody said that it of, of note said that it had uh, merit, 
that they were good to go. They didn't have to pursue it any further than that. Okay, so I'm just going to read a bit of Howell. I actually think that Kaddish is probably Ginsburg's greatest poem, but I think Howell certainly has a lot of significance for the beats and for 1950s culture. And frankly, for me as a young man, I had never heard, uh, you know, at 15 or 16, I didn't realize that people wrote poetry about this kind of stuff. So it was a little bit the poem that you hoped your parents wouldn't find you reading. <laughs> which was a good thing. I mean, again, when you're 15 or 16, that's kind of what you want. You want something that's edgy and whatever. So, Howl for Carl, for Carl Solomon. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging them through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, with who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant, cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake light tragedy amongst the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing its obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in uneven rooms and underwear, burning their money its work in wastebaskets and listening to the terror through the wall, who got busted in their pubic beards, returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire in paint hotels or drank turpentine in Paradise Alley, death or purgatory their torsos night after night with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls, incomparable blind streets of shuddering cloud and lightning in the mind, leaping towards poles of Canada and Patterson, illuminating all the motionless world of time between peyote solid solidities of Paul's backyard and green tree cemetery dawns, wine drunkenness over the rooftops, storefront burrows of tea head joyride, neon blinking traffic light, sun and moon and tree vibrations in the roaring winter dusts of Brooklyn, ash can rantings in the kind king light of mind who chained themselves to subways for the endless ride from Battery to Holy Bronx and Benzedrine until the noise of wheels and children brought them down shuddering, mouth-racked and battered bleak of brain and all drained of brilliance in the dear light of zoo, who sank all night in submarine light of Bickford's floated out and sat through the stale beer afternoon in desolate Fugazis, listening to the crack of doom on the hydrogen jukebox, who talked continuously 70 hours from park to pad to bar to Bellevue to museum to the Brooklyn Bridge. <sighs> so this is all one sentence, by the way. I kept waiting for a period to stop. Oh, no, the whole first section is one sentence. One sentence. It's one ecstatic sentence. Folks, you got to read this. Uh, I remember just this pop, memory popped into my head. Um, I had had, uh, I was like 22 or something, 23, you know, still kind of young and, and stupid. And I hadn't gone to college at this point. I had a little bit of college, 
didn't really work out for me. And I was working, I was an actor, I did other things. But um, I remember I'd gone through a very bad breakup uh, that was entirely my fault, by the way. This is not, this is my own, you know, you get, you get trapped in a, in, a, in a trap of your own making. Uh, and so it was very painful. And I, you know, went through a period where I drank heavily. And then I, I drank a little bit less because when you're really kind of at sixes and sevens, you know, when you're really at odds with yourself and your life, it's actually harder at least I experienced harder to drink because um, you don't feel well, you're not sleeping much, you know, you have all of these, you know, you're in a bad place. So this was a bad breakup and I was in that place. And a, a friend of mine from the theater world kind of reintroduced me to poetry at that time because he was an older guy. He did a lot of book reviews and so, so, so forth and so on. And he was very well educated and he lent me some books of poetry. And, and finally we, ended up reading Howl or, or, or I ended up reading it. And uh, I used to read it to people randomly at parties. I would just pull it out and start reading Howl. Uh, and I can tell you that if you read this to a group of people at a party or whatever, even if they're not people who would read poetry, this is very effective. I mean, this, this kind of, this has such a momentum to it. This is like, you know, hopping a freight train in a sense. You know, you're just going and going and you can go as, as Tom mentioned, the whole first part, which goes on for, several more pages here and this is this is the fairly big book i mean it goes on for another two or three or four pages one sentence with the same you know propulsion it's it's very very um it's very captivating i think ginsburg was going to a place where he wanted to bring back the spirit of blake yeah mm -hmm. william blake the the religious ecstatic poet who has no place in 1950s America. <laughs> and Percy Shelley, who is so radical that he still has no place, even in colleges when they teach the romantics. Uh, they skip Shelley over somehow, even though he's a principal character. Right. Uh, he's just too much. And Ginsburg used to recite Adonais, which is a very long poem by Shelley. Um, it must have been a very odd thing to happen at parties. <laughs> I would say so. Have you tried to, to, to teach Shelley, Tom, in your, in your teaching career? I have, but I have not. Um, the classes that I would teach Shelley in, I don't have a lot of time for the 19th century, not definitely not enough time for the romantics. Right. And you can only do a little bit of Shelley. And sometimes when you do something in the classroom, uh, the fact that it's in the classroom lessens its radicalism. Right. You can hear something in the class and kind of doze off and be bored yeah. that you would yeah, challenge someone to a duel if they said it on the street. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's interesting. I, I didn't make the Shelley connected. The Blake I knew a little bit, but say more about Blake. I'm interested in this. Tell me, tell tell us more about Blake and his con 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 connection to, to Ginsburg. Uh, Blake is really the poet of holiness. He is the one who says everything is holy, everything is God. We are all God, we are all holy. We are all part of this. Um, and I think when, when Blake is writing this, 
uh, he's not a a well-known figure, but he's a well-known artist and a well-known illustrator. And he's seen as being kind of a harmless eccentric. Uh, but then later on when Ginsburg does it, he is seen as being this kind of counterculture figure. You know, Blake was a, a famous nudist and he and his wife would sit out in the garden in front of all the London neighbors naked and no one really cared. And, you know, he would write poems and recite them at parties and no one cared. He'd write, do his songs. He had this very complex theology uh, that I, I won't get into because it's kind of unfathomable. But what in 1850 was considered a kind of a garden variety eccentric mm -hmm. by 1950 was completely out of bounds. It did not have Blake, and Ginsburg knew this. And he knew the power of a poet who uh, sounded so, so good when he read them. Well, it's interesting, too, because I think in um, England, there is this idea of the eccentric, you know, the eccentric person. Now, many times the eccentric person is a member of the, of the upper class, so that you do have a lot of classicism wrapped up in that idea. But I'm not sure that we have quite the same amount, the same idea in America, particularly in the 50s. But even now, I feel like part of what Kerouac, to some degree, is arguing for, at least implicitly, is the role of people who just don't fit in. You know, the role of the, the outsider, of the misfit, of, of the eccentric, and that that's part of what makes America and the part of what they don't want to lose, um, you know, in for Kerouac, it's the bum, it's the hobo, it's the, 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 the tramp that, um, you know, jumps onto a train and, and sees the country that way and eats by campfire and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's his vision. Uh, but I do think that that is a, a, a kind of a wellspring of compassion because if you accept people as eccentrics and, you know, if you're on your lawn lazing around in the nude, um, I will say here, by, this is my standard joke, uh, the first time you go to a nude beach, you realize that most people look best with their clothes on. But anyway, um, that if you allow people that, that leeway of, of eccentricity, that we do become a more compassionate culture because of that, uh, and that there is something about conformity that is really lacking in compassion, um, which I think is, is is interesting. That that's that's kind of what what their part of the idea of the Beats is, and part of their relationship not just to what kind of America it is in the 1950s or should be, but what kind of America it has been, because there is this idea I think in the 50s that there's a cultural sort of culling going on, you know, C-U-L-L-I-N-G, that they're culling ideas from America's past that aren't, uh, aren't satisfactory. On the one hand, you can say that um, the civil rights movement, to my view, is of course right on, on the mark and that the racism that was open and perfectly fine in 1920 or 1930 or even in 1950 is not okay. On the other hand, if it's this very conformist straitjacket, you know, if you had um, 
communist parents uh, or were interested in communism in the 1930s, as many, many Americans were, uh, that somehow that was terrible and you were a terrible person and you needed to be monitored or uh, lose your job or not be allowed to do things. You didn't deserve your civil rights. Right, right. That's what freedom is. Yeah, and you, you definitely get that. Um, you know, Kerouac rose up in the 30s. So, you know, you always carry the, uh, the references of your youth. Mm -hmm. uh, so when he was going through 1950s America, you're still looking at it through the lens of the Depression. And you're going to find that right through the beats. I was a little surprised going through Ginsburg's poems and seeing in the 60s he mentions the Beatles and the Stones and rock and roll. Yeah. This is a jazz generation. This is what, whatever they're doing, they're always using these images from the past. And they're not just blanketly rejecting things. They are blanketly accepting everything. Yes, certainly in terms of, of Ginsburg and to some degree Kerouac as well. Uh, definitely, there's more of an embrace. I wanted to, before we leave Ginsburg, I wanted to read a little bit of Kaddish, because it's, it's my favorite Ginsburg poem. I, is it his greatest poem? Well, yeah, it is, but I don't want to get into that. <laughs> I don't want to start any arguments. It doesn't have the cultural... Right. I mean, it doesn't have the cultural significance of how... I mean, how when you talk about cultural significance, it talks, you're talking about the moment in that culture specifically with that work. And you just can't, um, it's something you can't replicate or even really plan most of the time. It just happens. Uh, and Kaddish is not destined to be that kind of a poem. It's much more personal. It is about um, Ginsburg and uh, at the death of his mother. Uh, Allen Ginsberg's mother was severely mentally ill, which he details in the poem. I don't think I'm going to read that part, but uh, it's definitely the poem itself is, is long like Howell. It's, it's, it's a longer poem, but it is worth uh, uh, reading. And uh, it is this, again, this, uh, the ambiguity out of which poetry is made. Um, I'm going to read some from the beginning and a little from the end uh, because his relationship is so ambiguous with his mother, because he was to some degree, as at least as he writes it, the caretaker of his mother during the times when she was having these, what are really psychotic breaks. I mean, this is a very serious mental illness. Uh, he's the caretaker of her as a, as a young, well, as a boy, really a 13 or 14 year old. And of course, all of the treatments they have available for mental illness in the, in the 1930s are, are wildly ineffective for, for this level of mental illness. There's really little more that they can do for her other than uh, perhaps put her in a mental institution, which I believe is what happens with Ginsburg's mother. And I believe she does die uh, having been institutionalized. Um, so I'm gonna read just a little bit of the opening and a little bit of the end of Kaddish. Kaddish. Uh, before you do. Yeah, please, go ahead. I'd just like to remind the the audience that uh, to be institutionalized at this time was a huge shame. Um, oh, it's yeah. not something that people would speak openly about. There'd be relatives who would just never mention that person again. Um, right. 
it's a tremendous stigma that Ginsburg is just kind of casually tossing aside here. Right. That is um, very true. He's leaving us hang up some suburbia. But I'm sorry, go on. No, no, that's a good point. Good point. Um, so Kaddish for Naomi Ginsburg, 1894 to 1956. This poem is published in 1959. Strange now to think of you gone without corsets and eyes while I walk on the sunny pavement of Greenwich Village, downtown Manhattan, clear winter noon, and I've been up all night talking, talking, reading the Kaddish aloud, listening to Ray Charles Blues shout blind on the phonograph. The rhythm, the rhythm, and your memory in my head three years after, and read Adonais's last triumphant stanzas aloud, wept, realizing how we all suffer, and how death is that remedy all singers dream of. Sing, remember, prophecy as in the Hebrew anthem or the Buddhist book of answers, and my own imagination of a withered leaf at dawn. Dreaming back through life, your time and mine accelerating towards apocalypse, the final moment, the flower burning in the day, and what comes after, looking back on the mind itself that saw an American city a flash away, and the great dream of me or China, or you and a phantom Russia, or a crumpled bed that never existed, like a poem in the dark, escaped back to oblivion. No more to say and nothing to weep for but the beings in the dream, trapped in its disappearance, sighing, screaming with it, buying and selling pieces of phantom, worshiping each other, worshiping the God included in it all, longing or inevitability, while it lasts a vision, anything more? It leaps about me as I go and walk the street, back, look back over my shoulder, 7th Avenue, the battlements of window office buildings shouldering each other high under a cloud, tall as the sky an instant, and the sky above an old blue place. Or down, da <clears throat> or down the avenue to the south, to as I walk towards the Lower East Side, where you walked 50 years ago, little girl from Russia, eating the first poisonous tomatoes of America, frightened on the dock then struggling in the crowds of Orchard Street. Toward what? Toward Newark, toward candy store, first homemade sodas of the century, hand-churned ice cream and back room on musty brown floor floorboards. Toward education, marriage, nervous breakdown, operation, teaching school, and learning to be mad in a dream. What is this life? Just gonna read the last little bit. Strange prophecies anew. She wrote, The key is in the window. The key is in the sunlight at the window. I have the key. Get married, Alan. Don't take drugs. The key is in the bars, in the sunlight, in the window. Love your mother, which is Naomi. Yeah, there's something to, that's very moving to me about the poem, about the sunlight and the window, the end. 
it's all kind of inexplicable. You know, people are alive, they die, they mean a lot to you. You can never quite, and even in the course of this poem, which goes on, um, which is fairly long, uh, can't quite sum it all up. But it's a really beautiful poem. And I think captures um, a more personal side of Ginsburg. It's less ecstatic in many ways, but it's also very moving and um, represents another side of Ginsburg that we don't hear from that often in his poetry. Uh, and I think it's too bad, um, but it's a beautiful poem. I, I certainly think it's, it may be his best. There's a um, uh, thousand pages in this book. Oh, 1,200 pages in this book almost. It's not all essential Ginsburg. And I mean, his, his Achilles heel is always that he just seemed to wrote, write down everything that he thought. You know, kind of everything gets in there. It's not a terrible thing. He's got a lot of great poems. But it's also the best thing about him is that he includes everything. But then but, you're stuck with everything. Right. You kind of can't separate that out. You can't make him into a poet that only writes the absolute essence because for him, everything is, has, has some sort of essence and he's always driving towards or trying to get, or just writing down something or whatever, you know, so you kind of can't have the one without the other. I wanted to turn to On the Road since I, I, I spent quite a bit of time rereading it. And I wanted to talk a little bit about it. Tom, I don't want to, and I don't want to curtail anything. Do you have more to add about Ginsburg? Anything else you wanted to say? Oh, no, I'm done. Let's, let's get to Kerouac. All right. So Kerouac is, obviously, when you say the beat generation, I think Jack Kerouac is the first name that comes to mind for most people who, who know the beat generation. Uh, Ginsburg also is there, but, but Ginsburg also has a, has a longer career. Kerouac and On the Road, that is really, and that's also where a lot of the, the cliches of the Beat Generation c come from. I mean, in all of the film versions of the Beat Generation, and I, ha I don't think I've seen them all, but all of the depictions seem to me to be almost unintentional parody. There, it's just, there's a certain kind of Beat, like, hey, daddy-o kind of uh, attitude that is very hard to do genuinely at this point in time. And I think that stems from On the Road, the sort of, as, as Ginsburg puts it, the angel-headed hipsters. That's, you know, part of, part of what's in Howl is a distillation of what's in On the Road, this sort of uh, pulsing, trying to, find, uh, trying to find ecstasy, a sort of religious ecstasy, ecstasy through debauchery, through travel, through constant movement. And I think it's easy to knock On the Road from this pan vantage point of today and for how our society is today. But I wanted to read a couple of short passages, just each about a paragraph or so uh, from On the Road that I think show what Kerouac was trying to get to and, and paint him in, in, a, in a good or, or um, positive light. The funny thing about On the Road is every time that I was really ready to give up on the book in general and just, just say, God, this is not even worth rereading, I'd stumble on a, chat, on a passage that I thought, well, that's actually got something to say for it. Here's one passage that I think works for what Kerouac is trying to do. 
in terms of his prose. We reeled through the sultry old light of Algiers, back on the ferry, towards the mud-splashed, crabbed old ships across the river, back on canal and out on a two-lane highway to Baton Rouge in purple darkness, swung west there across the Mississippi at a place called Port Allen. Port Allen, where the rivers all rain and roses in a misty pinpoint darkness, and where we swung around in a circular drive and yellow fog light and suddenly saw the great black body below a bridge and crossed eternity again. What is the Mississippi River? A washed clod in the rainy night, a soft plopping form drooping Missouri banks, a dissolving, a riding of the tide down the eternal waterbed, a contribution to brown foams, a voyaging past endless veils and trees and levees, down along, down along by Memphis, Greenville, Dora, Vicksburg, Natchez, Port Allen, and Port Orleans, and the port of the deltas by Potash, Venice, and on the night's great gulf and out. So, you know, he's trying to capture the poetry, I think, of America, the poetry of the streets and the people and the highways and the sort of vast plane of it all. And I, his prose itself veers from sort of the Hemingway-esque, very short sentences, we did this, then we did that, then we did this other thing, uh, to more like Thomas Wolfe, you know, that's kind of more of a Thomas Wolfian kind of longer flowing sentences with a lot of descriptions. A little bit like Thomas Wolfe, he does sometimes rely on um, words like eternity, you know, which are tough words because it seems to evoke a lot more than it says. And I, and, and they're, they're like 50 cent words that you really can only use so many times before people are like, oh, I see. So you don't really know what it is. You're just trying to capture it with this word and it sounds very vague, you know, eternity. Well, in a sense, what sense is it eternity? I mean, I guess the Mississippi River, in a sense, is, is kind of an eternal point of America and means a lot in terms of the cultural history of America. Um, Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, rather, and that kind of thing. Um, but I think that where Kerouac gets a little tough is that he may be, and this is, a, this is a young man's book. I mean, not only is it probably best read by a man younger than I, but it was written by a young man um, in his, you know, 20s or 30s. Um, Kerouac, I think, was just a little under 30 when he wrote this. So it's, in a sense, a young man's He's a young man. He's a young man. Uh, and those ideas, I think, are more powerful to a, to a young man than they are to someone who's a little bit older. Um, the other thing is that the sort of the, the spiritual quest of it is something that is never quite spelled out. Caroline gets to it at a couple of points uh, where he talks about it, you know, and it's usually put in the other passage I wanted to read which I can't find at the moment, was very much about how he's looking. He's talking to this woman on a bus, this young woman, and he's trying to push her into like, well, what do you want? What is it? What is it the thing that you want? And she's like, well, I'd like to have a nice job and get a paycheck. And, and he's like, no, 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 but what, you know, what's the it? What's the it that burns inside you? You know, what is that thing? What is it that you want? Um, and she can't go there with him. 
she can't go there with him. Um, and it becomes clear in that moment how you feel how much he is the character Sal Paradise. And also you can extrapolate a little bit. The author wants to feel that it and does feel that it, that, that thing that you burn for this, you know, the starry dynamo in the heavens of whatever, like that's what he's getting at, but he can't quite articulate it. And where this book doesn't work for me in my rereading, now I'm 50, I'm a recovered alcoholic, you know, the idea of people spending hours and hours in a bar and looking for enlightenment at the bottom of a shot glass is not an idea that, that really resonates with me at this point in my life. And, and so where this book a little bit falls apart is that so much of it seems so just dismal. You know, there's like so much running around from place to place and, and, the character, the Neil Cassidy character, uh, Dean Moriarty in the book, seems so obviously bipolar. You know, he's got times where he's just, where he doesn't sleep for days and they're driving or he's, they're just running around the city and he's got this sort of manic energy. And it's clear that other people in the book are feeling this and some of them are like, whoa, this guy's nuts and like steering clear of him. Um, and Kerouac has this bond with him, or I should say Sal Paradise, has this bond with him that, that um, he really feels. And we feel it too, to some degree, especially when we learn about Neil's past or Dean's past. Uh, the fact that his, you know, he really, his mother is, is long dead. His father was a, was a street level alcoholic and he was really raised in pretty tough circumstances. And at one key moment in the book towards the end, he, he reaches out to his cousin who is in Denver and the cousin meets with him and just wants him to sign some forms and tells him that the rest of the family doesn't want anything to do with him or his father ever again. They don't talk about him. And he's basically cut off from the family life in this sort of, sort of terrible moment. And of course, you feel for him in that moment. And somewhat predictably, like within a day or so, the Dean Moriarty character is going on this tear of a bender where he's, he's like compulsively stealing cars because he had been a car thief. I mean, one of the things that Neil Cassidy was when he was young and a delinquent was he was a car thief and he would steal, stole a lot of cars and ended up doing some prison time because of it. Uh, and he, um, he did time or he, he went on this bender where he steals a bunch of cars kind of compulsively one after another. Uh, and it's cl clear uh, from my reading now, although I'm a hundred percent positive that I, that I missed this when I was 16, that those two things are very closely related. That the fact that his family shows up, or this representative of his family shows up, who he's hoping is going to be this great connection for him back to his family, um, and this guy shows up and he's like, "Yeah, I'm re recovered now. I'm reformed, and we're cutting you off. We just want you to sign these forms for whatever reasons, legal reasons, with the family inheritance or whatever." Um, so that you feel for him in, uh, and so there are moments where the novel does work, but for me overall, it was a little bit of a slog just because I couldn't, there was so much that seemed so wildly dysfunctional. It was hard to connect that with, um, spiritual questing or growth or whatever. Um, not the least of which is the fact that, you know, 
Neil is sort of, or I should say, I should say Dean Moriarty, the character in the book. It's not necessarily Neil Cassidy, although it is based on him, and I think it was true of him as well, that he had like a couple of wives and kind of went back and forth and had children with different women who he didn't really stick around for and that kind of thing. Um, and I think one of the liabilities of the book is that there are there are literally no female characters that rise to a level greater than sort of suffering martyr in the book, that there just aren't any female characters that are allowed the same kind of a static connection uh, to the starry dynamo in the heavens or whatever. Uh, that is a that is a realm exclusively and on the road for men. Even though it was interesting, I was doing some background research and and Camille, who is one of the women uh, that that the Dean Moriarty character is married to in the book is based on this woman, Carolyn, who, who um, Neil Cassidy was married to for about 12 years. And she was somebody who, you know, he, she had gone to Bennington and studied with Martha Graham and she had this artistic life of her own and she did um, costume design and uh, did her, did, wrote herself. She was, she did some writing and did publish a memoir at some point in the, I think the seventies, um, anyway, she was an accomplished person in her own right, but she gets pretty short shrift in this book. And really, like like all the women, they're either um, sex, you know, they're either there for sex or they're there to kind of shrewishly keep these um, fantastic men, trying to keep these fantastic men down on their quest. So that did bother me. And I think that's, it's a little bit of an anachronistic reading and that, that, I don't think that was Kerouac's concern at the time, clearly, but I think it's a fair criticism because some of these women were, I mean, all of them, if you're going to embrace everybody and say your, your spirituality is, is there to uplift everyone, your spiritual quest is about, you know, mass enlightenment or seeing the holy in everyone, it should, by rights, include also women um, and not just your cadre of male friends. Uh, so, you know, I think reading it at 50 versus 15 was a very, very different experience. And I um, I don't think it's a great work of art. I do think that the cultural significance is undeniable, that this started people thinking about their lives in different ways. And I do think that there it has merit for that. And it can, even now, it got me thinking like, oh, all of the the compromises that we all make to say, well, I have to pay the bills and I have to have a, a roof over my head and, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And am I, am I turning away from something that might be more noble or more pure by, by making those compromises? You know, it does make you think about that even at my age. Uh, and that does have some merit, but at the end of the day, like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go and hitchhike across the country because obviously that would be insane. You know, even without the coronavirus, I don't think hitchhiking is a great idea <laughs> at this point. Um, and I don't know that that's the kind of life that I, I personally would want anymore, or that seems very romantically desirable in that romantic way that when you're 15 or 16, a book like this can make you feel. That's true. Uh, but it's also this idea that, you know, Ginsburg talks about the starry dynamo and the machinery of night. Yeah. But Kerouac talks about um, a contribution to brown foam. That's his Mississippi River. 
Right. It's this endless churning out of something that is real and that is eternal and that you don't really want. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I didn't, I didn't take a look at On the Road for this, um, but does anyone in On the Road really find any kind of redemption or do they, find, do they finish their spiritual quest? I have to say that's a no. It does not feel like that ever happens. And literally, he never says, this is it, I found it, I'm done. Uh, I'm not sure they're better off when they finish than when they start. Right. Well, that's where it's really kind of a picaresque book in that you don't really have a, a narrative arc where the characters start in one place and get to another, whether that, that place that they get to is better or worse. It seems like it's a different version of the same thing, that we've just witnessed a slice of something that will go on as long as these people go on um, without changing much. Uh, and I think that really speaks to this whole beat generation where they go off on their quest and they have the quest. The quest is meaningful, but they don't end up with anything at the end. None, none of the beat poets become, you know, great spiritual people in 1960. You know, they go out and they get jobs and do whatever they do, but... Um, you know, the yeah. journey isn't. In a sense, it is not fulfilled. Although you could argue that from a Buddhist point of view, that's the whole point is that, you know, there's this idea of the Buddhist quest and they have this actually in, uh, I saw this on film. It's somewhere in Asia and I don't even know, it might be in India. So it's this thing that is maintained by this Buddhist monastery and it's basically a cave. And you go in on one side and you have to progress through this cave. Now it's pitch dark. You have to squeeze through walls. God only knows what's in this cave. Uh, you squeeze through walls. You have to go under, uh, you know, over stuff. You're climbing. You're getting there. You know, it takes maybe an hour or two. And then you come out and the exit of this cave is like 10 feet from where you started. And they say, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's life. That is the metaphor for enlightenment to realize that, you know, this is all just a struggle that you're going through. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to, there's no, there's no, you know, attainment of anything. You already have it. It's just, this is what life is, is, you know, this is the life you're going through right now. And your next life will be something different. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to, that's a, that's a separate, separate framework. But you, but I mean, it is hard not to take a look at this. And on the road and consider where Kerouac ended up, which was not a good place. You know, he ended up drinking himself to death, uh, died of a, a esophageal hemorrhage, which is basically, it's a classic uh, alcoholic's death where you've, you've drank so heavily for so long, the tissues of your esophagus actually just collapse and no longer can hold blood and, and you just internally bleed into death. Uh, it's a terrible way to go. Um, and the fact that he turned so radically away from what had been the beast generation 
certainly did not like the hippies. And I mean, you know, whatever, that's a judgment, but it was sort of viscerally unaligned. And um, there's a very interesting documentary that's worth watching called Whatever Happened to Kerouac, which details these last few years of his life, including uh, uh, he was on uh, William Buckley's show, The Firing Line, which most people don't remember. <laughs> William Buckley was this conservative commentator, uh, very intellectual, very erudite, not at all like the, the Trumpian conservatives of today. Uh, and I believe, I forget, it's an American spectator that he started. He started some very, very well-regarded and still, still in publication conservative uh, magazine. The National Review. National Review, thank you. And he had a show that I believe was on PBS uh, called Firing Line. And it was an interview show. And he'd usually, it was kind of debate-ish. You know, he'd usually have somebody that he disagreed with on. And they would go back and forth and debate. Um, and he had on Kerouac, and this was probably in 67 or 68, a, a year or so before he died. And Kerouac is drunk as a skunk um, the whole time. It's, it's a beautiful interview. It, it is very I can't help but think that every time Buckley said something stupid, Kerouac, Kerouac would abase himself, say something foolish, right. to show Buckley's foolishness. Interesting idea. I, I will have to rewatch it with that in mind. Because uh, Ginsburg is in the audience at that point too. Ginsburg's right in the front row, um, and it's just the the whole movie. If whatever happened to Kerouac is a very interesting movie. He seems to really have basically killed himself in slow motion uh, over a period of years, and there's a lot of debate, uh, biographical debate, on why he did that. But I think there is something about the spiritual quest. Uh, through debauchery, which probably, you know, you don't really have to go there. And I think one of the saddest parts of the 1960s is that that became sort of de rigueur for, uh, for, for people who are in the arts that it had to be this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of monument to excess that killed a lot of people who had a lot of talent and could have done great things and did do great things at the time that they had, but didn't have very much time because of this, um, this idea that this pursuit always had to be full of madness and, and um, drunkenness and, and drugs. And I don't think that drinking is necessarily bad. I don't think that using drugs is necessarily bad. I mean, people can do it. Um, I don't think it was all bad for me, even though I didn't, uh, you know, I, I do consider myself an alcoholic and don't have much control over my drinking except whether I choose to do it or not. I mean, that's the only way I can exercise control. I think the problem is, is that for me, and I suspect for Kerouac as well, that drinking a lot goes, with a, goes along with a kind of dishonesty where you're not able to see yourself or your life very clearly. So when Kerouac got famous for On the Road, which was years after, you know, it wasn't until the mid-50s where he became well-regarded and well-known, um, this image of who he had been sort of, or what he represents in On the Road kind of crushed him. You know, it wasn't, uh, I don't think it was who he really was and his retreat in from that was into alcoholism, which ultimately killed him. So I think if you're being honest with yourself and you're honest with, the people around you, that seems to be 
it seems to inoculate you against the worst of what drugs and alcohol maybe could do, or addiction, let's just say addiction to anything could do, but that one of the principles of addiction is a kind of dishonesty. Um, and I think it's that dishonesty. And I don't know what it was for Kerouac. Some people claim that he was gay and just couldn't deal with that. Uh, it is interesting that that On the Road is definitely a bromance. It's definitely Sal Paradise and Dean Moriarty on the road. And those are really the, the two most significant characters. Yes, Carlo Marx, who's the Ginsburg character, does appear in the book, but he literally appears in the book like twice. He is not in the book very much. Old Bull Lee, who's William Burroughs, also appears in the book, but I think only once. Mm -hmm. uh, so other characters don't really... And there are, of course, a few others that they kind of hang out with and, and they do stuff with and who are in the book. But it is, it is a, a kind of a love story between Dean Moriarty and uh, Sal Paradise um, for what it's worth. But again, not consummated. I mean, maybe that's part of like it never really gets anywhere. It never, they don't seem appreciably closer at the end of the book than they do in the beginning. You know, in a buddy movie, Usually by the end of the movie, the buddies are embracing and, and talking about how, how great uh, their love is for one another, their platonic, you know, friendship love or whatever. And if it's a buddy movie, On the Road doesn't have that. No. When I was in high school, and I don't think young people remember this. I don't think it's part of their world. Mm. People still talked about the 27 Club. Mm. And it was still this idealized, you know, live fast, die young, leave a corpse idea. Oh, right. But I, I am happy to say that I don't think this is still something that people, people think about, something that they, they idealize. Yeah. I hope not. I can say that dying at 27 just sounds terrible. I mean, it sounds like, ugh, you know. I feel like my life began sometime after 27. Yeah, yeah. I think definitely for me it was 30 or so. Uh, had I passed away at 27, I would have been a, a blur, like literally and figuratively kind of a blur. I just wanted to read one little piece by Ferlinghetti. Because sometimes we forget that, yeah, the beats have all these crazy things about them that make them different. But they also have a lot of solid virtues. Don't let that horse eat the violin, cried Chagall's mother. <laughs> he kept right on painting. He became famous and kept on painting. The horse with the violin in its mouth. And when he finally finished it, he jumped up upon that horse and rode away, waving the violin. And then, with a low bow, gave it to the first naked nude he ran across. There were no strings attached. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Um, and I, I love the wittiness in the, the wordplay and yeah. the fact that, yeah, these writers for all of the debauchery, for everything that they do, are still fun. They're still witty. Yes. I certainly wouldn't want to... Yeah, I, I absolutely do think that that is true. And that's a huge reason why to, you should go back and reread these folks. Kerouac's end notwithstanding, I mean, Frillinghetti is still alive. 
his he's a delightful poet. Gregory Corso. Over a hundred. Yes, over a hundred. He is over a hundred now. Gregory Corso, which we have not talked about too much, uh, was also a very interesting poet. He has a great poem called Marriage. I think if you're out there contemplating marriage or in a marriage, whether good, bad, or indifferent, you definitely owe it to yourself to Google Gregory Corso Marriage. It's a relatively short poem, well worth reading. It's hilarious. And it also is an interesting take on marriage. We need people who are different. We need people who are willing to break the rules, who are willing to paint uh, horses uh, eating violins or whatever. We need those people. We need them now and our society always needs them. Uh, and that's where most artists come from. Even, I mean, look at somebody like Kafka. Kafka was a clerk. You know, he had the most mundane of, of jobs uh, and yet he was also someone who was very deeply conflicted about his relationship with his overbearing father and wrote this uh, crazy literature that he was actually ashamed of. You know, he made famously made a promise with his best friend as he was, he was, he died of tuberculosis. You know, he made his best friend promise to burn all of the things that he had written. And I think only one of those things had been published in his lifetime. Uh, and thank God his, his friend did not follow through on this promise. And that's why we have his, his works today. You know, we need people who think differently and people who look at things from a different angle, like, the, like our beloved uh, Beats. Who would take risks and would publish the risks, whether they were successful or not. Absolutely. Everything was holy. Everything was holy. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed talking about the beats. I have too. I forgot how much I liked them until I started reading them again. Right. There's, there's a lot of good there, folks. If you're interested, they're, they're widely available. I think all of the major beat writers are still very much in print. They're widely available. Sorry we didn't talk about Burroughs that much, but he has a lot of works that are out there and that you can read as well. Uh, while you're quarantined, you know, once in a while, maybe turn the internet off and open up a book. Or if you are on the internet, a lot of these poems are online and you can find them pretty easily. Uh, and they're great fun and they're great fun to read out loud. Um, I really, I really recommend reading these poems out loud. If you've got someone that you're holed up with here during this coronavid time, uh, read them out loud to each other. They're great fun. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk. We'll be back again with episode three. Tom, what do you want to do in episode three? I don't know. Well, I mentioned Kafka. Have you have you had any Kafka experiences? I guess the world right now is pretty Kafka-esque. I'm sure Kafka would love that we're all staying home, except I believe he was the promoter for the Yiddish theater. He wasn't oh, totally a shut-in. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. He was an impresario as a, as a hobby. Oh, as a hobby. Interesting. Interesting. Well, shall we do Kafka next time? Um. If I can get my hands on a Kafka in quarantine. Yeah, I, I would have to look through my shelves, but I think we can. Well, we'll talk more, but we'll, we have a tentative plan for episode three then to be Kafka. So I hope, you're, I hope you're, your experiences in the house are just as much fun as the experiences on the road. I hope you get a chance to howl once in a while. And if you know, we are facing a time where you may have some occasion for a Kaddish. And if you do, 
I hope it's a or a marriage or a marriage. And either way, I hope it's gentle and I hope it's meaningful to you. I hope this has been fun for you as it has been fun for us. And we will see you next time on Life in Words. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. This has been Life in Words, a part of the Chewing on Tin Foil family of podcasts produced by Nate Byer, edited by Nate Byer, and recorded by Tom Oliveri and Nate Byer. Music on today's show has been by Lee Rosaveri and by the band Pictures of the Floating World. Thanks again for listening. Take care.